We're in Galatians chapter 6 tonight. And before we go any further, let's bow our heads together and let's have a word of prayer. Father, this evening we appreciate this opportunity to once again open the Scripture. Lord, we don't take it lightly. We ask that you please now allow your Spirit to guide us into all truth. Help me, Lord, bring things to my remembrance that need to be said, that need to be covered. And Lord, we don't want to just rush through this so that we get it done. Lord, you take us where we need to go tonight. And Father, if we need to take longer on this section, then Lord, it's, it's in your hands. But please guide us, we beg you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, Galatians chapter 6, the outline for this chapter, verses 1 to 6, law of Christ, law of Christ. Verses 7 to 10, the law of sowing and reaping. And then verses 11 to 18, I'm going to call the law of the cross. And when we get to that section, I believe that'll be more obvious as to why I say that. Now, Galatians 6 and verse 1 says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Now generally, the way it unfortunately happens in churches a lot is if somebody is overtaken in a fault, they've made a mistake, they've yielded to the flesh, and they're struggling to overcome that. Too many times people take advantage of that. They see this as an opportunity to self-promote. They point out how bad that fault is and they seek an opportunity for vain glory. Now remember when Paul wrote this, there were no chapter and verse markings. So where chapter 5 ended, Paul's thought continued to flow into what we know as chapter 6. So look at the end of chapter 5. Let us not be desirous of vain glory. And then he goes right into, if a brother is overtaken in a fault, our, our concern should be trying to help that brother get restored back into good fellowship with God and good fellowship with the local church and trying to edify and help him out. It should not be an opportunity for vain glory. In the spirit, a spiritual man is somebody who is yielded and in submission to the Holy Spirit. That's a spiritual man. So if a, a man, a fleshly man, a carnal man, the opposite would be true. He is somebody yielded to the desires of his flesh. So Paul says, ye which are spiritual. So the Spirit of God is going to lead you to restore such an one, that erring brother, in the spirit of meekness. So you approach him gently, patiently. If you want to just make a cross reference here, 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 24 to 26. It talks there about the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, lest peradventure God will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. Uh, it, it ties into what he's saying. Restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. So you don't go over there thumping them over the head with the Bible but you genuinely want to see that brother overcome whatever the, the problem is he's struggling with. Now, another thing we need to make note of, it says restore such in one. The restoration process, well, it is exactly that. It's a process. So let me give you the various steps in the restoration process. When a brother gets out of line, 
and he has given into the flesh. And we're, we're talking not just one mistake, but this besetting sin has beset him. And it's, he's overcome with it, overtaken. Number one, rebuke him, right? Rebuke him. Uh, I'm going to just check my cross-reference here, but I believe it, it, Luke 17. I know it's Luke 17, but I think it's verse 3. Yeah, Luke 17, 3. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. If he repent, forgive him. So that helps with this process we're talking about. Number one, rebuke him. Do it patiently. Do it gently. But you need to point out that he's wrong. Number two, if he repents. So that's the second thing. Rebuke him. And then if he repents, number three, forgive him. In Second Corinthians, first and second Corinthians, we have a good example of this. In First Corinthians five, there's a brother who is overtaken in a fault. Paul says the church should gather and pray this man out. And by the time you get to Second Corinthians chapter two, you see that this man had evidently repented. And Paul says, bring him back, forgive him, and, and restore the fellowship with, between that man and the local church. Which brings me to step number four. After you've forgiven him, you accept him back. That is, you, you can accept him back into church fellowship. He, he's allowed to be part of the congregation again and participate as an active church member. But also a personal fellowship with other believers uh, he should be accepted back. So re rebuke, repent, forgive, and then accept. So with chapter 6 and verse 1, Paul doesn't lay out all of those steps. You can find all of those, in, as I've mentioned, in other places in his writings. But restore such in one. So this is assuming that the man has already been um, through the first two steps. He got rebuked. Maybe even the Lord just dealt with his heart. He has repented. And now Paul says, bring this guy back. Uh, help him out. In verse 1, at the end of it, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. A spiritual man recognizes the potential for his own failure. A spiritual man is not one who, who, who thinks that sin cannot touch him. He's humble enough to realize that his old nature is still operating in him. That's a very important point to, to notice. Consider yourself. You look at that brother and say, you know what? I would like to think that I wouldn't do that, but I'm a sinner. All flesh is grass. If I were in that, in, in that situation, maybe I would also make a similar mistake. You, when you consider yourself in that way, it will help you to deal patiently and meekly with that brother. Now, verse 2 says, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, the use of the word burdens, that's a very broad uh, word or category that we're talking about. Whatever our brother or sister is going through, we are looking to help them with it. Whether they're overtaken with a particular sin or you know, some sort of a, uh, a moral fault, or whether they're going through hard times, and uh, just finding it difficult to deal with what life is giving them. Whatever the burden is, we are to look to help and edify, strengthen, and, and get that person on their feet, stable, close to God. And the Bible says in verse 2, if we do that, we fulfill the law of Christ. 
Now, what law is this? This is when we use the phrase law of Christ, similar to how we would say law of gravity. It's how gravity operates. How does Christ operate? When he was on the earth, everywhere he went, the Bible says he went about doing good. He went about looking for opportunities to help people with whatever burden they had, whether it was blindness, deafness, whether it was a funeral, right? And he wanted to, he wept with them that wept. Whatever the case was, he would bear that burden. Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. All of us are called to carry a cross. And at the same time, we are called to help others carry their cross. And Jesus was a great example of that. So much so that at the end of Jesus's life, you might remember that as he was carrying his cross, his burden up Mount Calvary, that the soldiers yanked Simon the Cyrenian out of the crowd and had him help Jesus carry the cross, the final, the final bit of that journey. This, this shows me something. Jesus was not only an example of how to give help, he's also an example of how to receive help. He allowed people to help him. And that leads us into verse number three. For if a man think himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. If you think you're above help, then you're deceiving yourself. If, if you think so highly of yourself, and, and the, the, the language Paul uses here, when he thinks himself to be something, I don't want to say it's sarcastic, but maybe a figure of speech of some sort, but I, he's just driving home the point, you really think you're something, that you can, you can go through life bearing your own burdens and you'll never need help from anyone? Really? That's, that's who you think you are? Even Jesus accepted help carrying his cross, so surely you would need that as well. He thinks himself to be something when he is nothing. A man without God in his life who is completely dependent on his flesh, what's the end of that man's life? What is his life going to amount to? Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing, right? Without Christ, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So without Christ, there's no way, there's no truth, there's no life. What does that man amount to? What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose himself, lose his own soul, the Bible says. So it turns out to be nothing. So Paul, I think the point he's driving home is bear you one another's burdens. And so while you're looking to help others, don't be afraid to ask for help and receive help. Then, Paul does something very brilliant here. He balances that statement with, with verse 4. But, you see there, now he's going to talk about the other side of it. But let every man prove his own work. Then, and then, shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. It's okay to receive help. Don't think you're above that. But let every man prove his own work. That is, make, make sure you're pulling your weight. Make sure you're doing what you can do to fix that problem or overcome that temptation. When the Bible speaks here about proving your own work and then you can have rejoicing in yourself alone, I think of, 
I see it in two, two different contexts. I've, I've seen this happen a lot with teachers and with parents. And you know, now that I say that, to some extent, even with some pastors as well. But the point I'm making is this. Sometimes a student will come to a teacher with legitimate questions. And like, you know, like a math equation. I don't understand this. What does X mean? What does Y mean? Why is this over that? And what does Z? And they have legitimate questions. They need help to figure that out. And in such a case, the student needs to ask. And the teacher needs to help. But then there are some students that take advantage of a teacher's kindness. And they begin to manipulate the teacher and ask question after question, almost uselessly, but they want the teacher to do the work for them. They don't want to do any of the thinking for themselves. And, and you might, in your mind, already see how that could apply with maybe a, a child and a parent, where the child makes excuse after excuse for why he or she cannot do something, and then mom and or dad ends up doing it for them. Well, the child may end up with a clean room, the child may end up with, you know, their clothes neatly folded or whatever the chore is that they need to get done that they were supposed to do, but mom and dad did it all. That student might end up with the homework being done, but that student didn't do it. The teacher did it for him. Then at the end of the day, when you look at the clean room or you look at the past exam or the good homework, that student, that child has no rejoicing in himself herself. They, they did no part of it. Now this is actually, I think, a very powerful point that we need to spend just a moment on because it seems to me that a lot of Bible-believing Christians, those that approach the Bible seriously and, and, and believe the words as they stand, they have a tendency towards this. I found it very common in Bible-believing circles. We like to beat ourselves up. And we struggle with the idea of self-worth. We struggle with the idea of value within ourselves because, and it's a noble, it's a noble fear, I think, because we don't want to get into pride. But Paul does say here, in a positive way, he'll rejoice in himself. So he'll look at what he's done and say, man, that was, I did a good job. I, I'm, I'm happy about what I've done. I'm satisfied. Somebody send me a chat if you would. I, my screen just flashed and said I got disconnected. Uh, but I'm going to continue on now. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10. It says here, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Now do you see, Paul realizes the only reason he's something is because of God's grace. But keep keep going. And His grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. Paul did something with that grace. Do you see that? So on, on the day of the judgment seat of Christ, Paul is going to give God the glory because ultimately the, the reason that we even made an effort was because of how much God loved us and the grace He showed us. But we have to pull our weight. We do have to put in some effort. He says, His grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Notice that Paul recognizes, and he's not ashamed to say, that he tried hard. He's not, this isn't a statement of pride. You can see 
Paul is careful to avoid that by how he finished verse 10, Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. So Paul is acknowledging it wasn't me by myself doing this. The reason that it, I did all of this was because of God's grace. Look at 1 Corinthians 3, and you'll see the same thought. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 8. 1 Corinthians 3 and 8. All right, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 8. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. Verse 9, for we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. Now we are laborers together with God. While God is working on us, we're his husbandry and building. While he's working on us, we have to remember he's working on me so that I can be an extension of the body of Christ, which ministers and builds others. Jesus gave the illustration of a vine and branches. I'm the vine, you're the branches, he said. As strange as it might sound, in this case, one branch ministers to another branch. Now, we're all connected in the vine, but the body of Christ is designed so that one member ministers to the other member. What Paul says in verse 8, everybody gets rewarded for his own labor. You have to do something with the grace God's given you. So the idea of value, self-worth, let me, let me show you a verse in Philippians 3, verse 3. Philippians 3, 3. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. Now, it's a statement like that, and this is where I think a lot of well-intentioned Bible believers get a little skew. And they say, I have no confidence in myself. I'm nothing, Galatians 6. I'm less than nothing, Isaiah 40. I'm useless. I'm worthless. I have no value. And you see how they trailed off there. I, they started with a text, but then kind of, they, they ignored all the other verses where it does talk about God recognizing your labor, and you can rejoice in what you've done. You can say, it is God's grace, but I did try hard. Jesus said, in Matthew 10, there's a great passage where Jesus is talking to his disciples about the ministry. He's, he's sending the 12 out for the first time, and he's warning them of all the pitfalls of the ministry and how they're going to run up against false prophets and, and wolves in sheep's clothing. And then he says, and, and fear not him which kills the body, but not able to kill the soul. Yea, rather fear him that is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. He tells that to his disciples. He says, you guys, don't be afraid of man. They might kill you, but don't be afraid of them. Now, now put yourself in the disciples' shoes. You know what you're thinking right about then? I'm disposable. I'm disposable. Jesus is sending me out to preach, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, and if I die, don't be afraid of it. It's gonna, you know, they're going to hate you for, for preaching this stuff, so hey, it's part of it. And I, I believe that Jesus was aware of how that might be taken. So you know what he says just a couple verses later? He says, ye are of more value than the sparrows. He, he's talking about how God cares for and provides for his people. 
So lest they think I'm disposable, I'm, I'm just something that you know, can be thrown away and I'm useless. That's not the case. You are of, you are of great value to God. So you, when Paul says, I have no confidence in the flesh, that is his old nature. Paul has no confidence in that sinful nature. That is not to be taken to say, I have no value. I'm useless, because that's not true. All right, now come back to Galatians chapter 6, verse 4. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. So I want to be able to look at my life and be able to honestly say, I tried hard. Yes, there were faults and failures, but by the grace of God, I did what I did. I don't want to get to the judgment seat of Christ and have nothing to show for my life. I don't want to rejoice in what my pastor did. I don't want to rejoice... Let me say that a different way. I don't want to only rejoice in what my pastor did or what some other brother or sister in Christ did. I want to have something to show for my life. In verse 5, he says, For every man shall bear his own burden. Now, you can think of this in a futuristic sense. That is, when you stand at the judgment seat of Christ, you will stand there alone. You'll bear your own burden. However, it's true in the present tense as well. That is, you have been called to carry a cross. You've been called to stand for Christ, and that might come with some tribulations or persecutions or whatever the case might be. Life is, is going to be difficult, and you're going to have to pull your weight. You have to carry your cross and try to help others carry theirs. This is the law of Christ. Let me throw this in as well. As Christ, I think this is in the Gospel of Luke, if I'm not mistaken. As Christ was going towards um, uh, Golgotha, he's carrying this cross, and some ladies are standing there by the wayside, and they, as he passes by, they're weeping for him. You know what he says? Weep not for me, weep for yourselves. If they do this in a green tree, what shall they do uh, in a dry? I think that's how it goes, something of that nature. But he's saying, if you. If you think it's bad now, it's going to get worse. So don't don't weep for me. Weep for for your generation. Weep for for your people now. It's going to get worse. Do you see that even while he was carrying his cross, he's still thinking of others and ministering ministering to others. Every man, it says, for every man shall bear his own burden. So pull your own weight. Now Galatians six verse six, a very uncomfortable verse for me, but we're going to cover it nonetheless. Galatians 6, 6, Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Now, the verse is telling you that if you're taught in the word, communicate unto him. So the one teaching you, you need, you need to communicate with your teacher in all good things. To communicate has to do with giving. And uh, Philippians 4, verse 15, if you want to just make a note of it, Paul mentions the word there, uses the word communicate as concerning giving and receiving. That church was giving a, an, an offering there. So this is a verse that's telling the student to support the teacher. You can see why I might be a little uncomfortable to approach the verse because I'm busy teaching you this. Let me show you a couple verses of Scripture that go with it. And I think you guys are already familiar with this principle. It's not something that we struggle with. 1 Timothy chapter 5, 
some churches do, right? In some churches, it's an issue. It, it's not one in ours. I have no complaints in, in this area. But First Timothy 5, verse 17 says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. So some pastors, elders, leaders in the church, they will be more busy about visiting people, comforting them, making sure the needs are met, praying with people, almost caretaking, right, in, in that sense. But then you have some elders, they do that as well, but they labor in the word and doctrine. So they're the ones busy teaching you, preaching to you. He says if, if they do a good job of it, then they're, they should be counted worthy of double honor. Verse 18 Tells, it tells us what that honor is. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. So you feed the pastor. He feeds you spiritually. You feed him carnally. And verse 18 also says, And the laborer is worthy of his reward. Uh, quoting from the Gospel of Luke. I, I have tried to do this myself. I, my teachers in Bible school, I personally went to them and thanked them for, for what they taught me. When Brother Donovan was here, some of you might remember, he came and visited. Uh, the timing of it slips me now, but it must have been a year and a half, two years ago, something like that. And as I was introducing Brother Donovan, I was in the pulpit. He was standing behind, behind me a little bit. And I asked him before the service, please wait to turn your microphone on because we, we cannot have our microphones on at the same time. Uh, one will cancel out the other. Even though I'd asked him that, it, he, he's not used to such a system. And so I was introducing him. And while I'm doing that, I was trying to tell everybody what a blessing he was, what an example he was, and how much I had learned. Brother Donovan does not take compliments very well <laughs> at all. And not not intentionally, but he, I mean, in the way that he wasn't trying to cut me off, but he turned his microphone on right in the middle of my compliment to him and it it cut my microphone so that I fell silent for a bit and uh, he was as he passed by me so I'm, I'm glad I put a, a, an end to that <laughs> I I wasn't doing it to make him uncomfortable I wanted to genuinely communicate to him um, that honor to say I, I do appreciate what you've done now you can maybe think of it this way, double honor, tell him verbally, but then show him physically. And as I said, in this case, it's um, with some sort, it can be with money or feeding him. And as I've mentioned, you guys take great care of me. I'm not complaining at all. I believe you guys do a good job of that. Verse 7, now we enter into the second um, part of our outline. Forgive me, before we leave verse 6. Verse 6 might seem like a strange verse to throw in there. Verses 1 to 5 seem to work very nicely together, but then all of a sudden he says, don't forget to pay the teacher or the preacher. Why throw that in there? Bear one another's burdens. So there, there is a balance of necessities. The pastor will feed you spiritually, and then you feed him carnally. And in so doing, we bear one another's burden. So it actually is connected. It just might kind of catch you by surprise that it's in there like that. All right, verse 7, we start now with the law of sowing and reaping. Now, this is a universal law. When I say universal, it doesn't matter where you are. 
Doesn't matter how old you are, young you are. Doesn't matter what your culture is, what language you speak. It doesn't matter which dispensation you live in, right? Before the law, under the law, after the law. It doesn't matter. The law of sowing and reaping remains steadfast. Verse 7, be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. We would, another way to phrase this, what comes around goes around. In the, in the East, they would refer to this more like karma. They have a slightly more complicated system, but it's the same type of thought. Now, sowing and reaping. There are certain rules to it. Let, let me give you three at least here. You reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. If you put a kernel of corn in the ground, corn is going to grow. Right? You don't put corn in the ground and have mangoes grow. You, you sow what you reap. Or I'm sorry, you reap what you sow. And then second, you reap later than you sow. I'm not a farmer, but doesn't, you don't have to be educated in agriculture to know that you plant the seed. It takes time before the fruit comes up. So you reap later than you sow. Now, you see, some people sin, and because they're not punished immediately, they think they got away with it. But that's not how sowing and reaping works. And then lastly, third rule, you reap more than you sow. So you reap what you sow, you reap later than you sow, you reap more than you sow. You put one kernel of corn into the ground, up comes an entire, I think, yellow say mealy, the whole mealy. I would call it an ear of corn with what is it, hundreds, or, or, you know, hundreds of kernels on it, a couple hundred kernels, you always reap more than you sow. Let me also say that this law of sowing and reaping can be interrupted. Just like with farming, if you plant something, you can disturb the process of that growth. Now, Jesus pointed this out with the seed that falls into the ground and then thorns choke it and stuff like that. You can interrupt it in both a good and a bad way. Let me give you a couple verses on this. Hosea chapter 10. Hosea chapter 10 speaks about sowing and reaping. Hosea 10 verse 12. Hosea 10 verse 12. He says, Sow to yourselves in righteousness... Reap in mercy. So if I've been sowing some sinful things, and then I repent and I, and I start to, to, to do some righteous things, then I can reap some mercy. You see? I, I still, there are still going to be consequences for what I did, but it may not be quite as bad because I did repent and I did make it right. Proverbs 28, verse 13, says that if you hide your sins, how does it work? If you hide your sins, you won't prosper, but he that confesseth and forsaketh them shall find mercy. Confess and forsake, you find mercy. So it can be interrupted to, to an extent. Now, that being said, you plant something, you let it grow for a little while, and then you go in and dig it up and root it out, get rid of the root and... You say, oh, see there, 
I'm not going to, there's no consequences. Yeah, but you had to tear that ground up. There's going to be some evidence, there's going to be a scar there in the ground where you dug it up. Sin will always leave a scar. Sin will never leave it, but it will never leave you better than it found you. Sin hurts. Now, in Galatians 6 and verse 7, when Paul says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. That is to say, you can't sin and get away with it. Don't, don't think, well, I've been doing it and doing it, and God hasn't done anything yet, then God must not see it or it must not be important. Don't think that you can just laugh it off and say, I can, I can get away with it, I can do what I want. No, you can't. It will eventually catch up with you. Verse 8, he kind of keeps that thought going. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. There's going to be some sort of destruction or punishment. Something's going to decay. Something's going to get worse. Now, this can apply temporally. That is, in this life, it can apply to the judgment when you stand before God. I'll show you. I'll explain that further in just a moment. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Now, guys, we've already covered this plenty in Romans and in Galatians. We understand how New Testament salvation works. We are not going to be rewarded with eternal life because we sow to the Spirit. We, we know that. Some people, they, they cherry-pick or take this verse out of context and they say, you see, if you want to be saved, you have to sow to the Spirit and yield to Him and continually walk in Him. Then you get eternal life. That's... That is not what Paul's saying. Now, I'm going to take this verse step by step. So first I want to talk about what it means to sow to the flesh, what it means to sow to the Spirit. And by the way, the attendance code for tonight is 1 Timothy 6, verse 19. 1 Timothy 6, verse 19. Now, sowing to the flesh. Let me give you some examples of what that is. Entertainment. When we talk about books, movies, TV series, music, any type of entertainment that furthers your desire for sin. When you partake of that sort of entertainment that furthers your desire for sin, that sowing to the flesh. What does it mean to sow to the flesh? When you let your mind wander into some bad places and you just think it through. That is catering to the flesh. It's giving the flesh what it wants. It's pampering the flesh. Give you another one. How can you sow to the flesh spending intimate time around people that encourage sin? That that is a way to sow to the flesh. You're setting your flesh up for, for failure. Another way. When you compromise with your flesh, you make a deal with your flesh and you say, okay, flesh, you're not allowed to do the big sins, but I will allow you to do the small sins. When you make that compromise with your flesh, with your old nature, that is sowing to the flesh. I'll give you another one. Sowing to the flesh, knowingly spending time in places that makes it easier to sin. Knowingly spending time in places that makes it easier to sin. I'll let you fill in the blank as to what 
those places might be. Now, it says that if you sow to the flesh, you give the flesh what it wants, you'll reap corruption. What are we dealing with? Well, the Bible says in Romans 8 that if you live after the flesh, you'll die. You can reap physical problems from sin, and there's lots of examples of this, right? How certain sins would affect your physical constitution. However, there are so many ways that sin can destroy your current life. It can wreck a marriage, wreck your job, wreck your health, ruin your reputation. There's so many, and I, and I mean that in the sense of you lose your testimony. So, so many things that can be, that can deteriorate and corrupt. It can send you into a, a, a downward spiral of depression. It can corrupt that, it can, it, it, it can corrupt the, the, how do I want to phrase this properly? It'll corrupt the way you look at yourself. That's a good way to say it. Now, when you think of this in the future sense, standing at the judgment seat of Christ, if you've been sowing to the flesh, you have wood, hay, and, and stubble. Those things are going to burn up. They're corruptible. They'll, they'll perish. They'll be destroyed a life wasted. So if you really want to see how this works, Paul gives us one verse here in Galatians. Romans chapter 8 verses 1 to 13. It Paul expounds on this thought of of sowing to the spirit, sowing to the flesh and the various consequences of both. So we're going to cover that soon in Romans, but just so that you know, you can look there if you want more information. We we actually will in just a second. Now, what does it mean to sow to the Spirit? All right, edifying, you're going to see a correlation here, by the way, with what we just said about the flesh. Using edifying material, such as good preaching, teaching, books, music, movies, right? There are forms of entertainment. Now, listen, if, if you're watching a movie, listening to a song or whatever, and it's just relaxing, and it doesn't push you towards sin, I don't, I'm not sure how or why I would condemn that. But you can devote too much time to it. That, that might be giving into your flesh. It can take away from other important things. But it's okay to take a break, relax, and have some, something that makes you laugh or smile, something lighthearted. However, if you want to sow to the Spirit, then you are going to... Put your, you're going to feed yourself with things that the Holy Spirit approves of. So you want that good preaching, teaching, books, and so forth. Number two, letting your mind wander, but now in a godly manner. You meditate on God and the Word. Uh, number three, spending intimate time, that is fellowship, with wise people that encourage godliness. Number four, Yielding to and obeying the Holy Spirit in all things, big and little. You don't make deals and say, I'll do this, I won't do that. You just say, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And you do it. And then lastly, I would say, and I'm just giving you a brief list, right? There's more you could add to this, but I, I will tell you now, intentionally spending time in places that make it easier to do right. The first place that comes to my mind is the local church. 
spending time in a strong local church where the Bible's preached and Jesus is exalted, it's going to sow to the Spirit. And he says, if you do that, you'll reap life everlasting. Now again, eternal life is not a reward. Eternal life is a gift. But here it says, you'll reap life everlasting. And it makes it sound like we get rewarded with that. But remember what eternal life is. Eternal life is not getting to live with God forever in heaven. Eternal life is something that starts now. It is a personal relationship with God. And when you sow to the Spirit, you are increasing the abundance of that that godly life, of that walk with God. You appreciate it more. You remember last night in Matthew, we talked about this, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So if you invest heavily in something, then you're going, to put, you're going to pay more attention to it. So if you are invested in spiritual things and you're paying attention to the Holy Spirit, what you're going to reap is a deeper, more precious relationship with God. And then future... If you want to think it all the way through to the future, obviously you're going to reap something at the judgment seat of Christ. Gold, silver, and precious stones. But let me give you a couple verses that tie into this. When you reap life everlasting, you are making this abundant life that you have right now with God, you are making it even more special. Verse, uh, John chapter 4, verse 36. John four thirty-six. John 4.36, Jesus says, And he that, rece- uh, he that reapeth receiveth wages. Now, he's, he, he, in the passage, he's talking about really soul winning, going out and preaching the gospel, leading people to God. He that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal. You're laying up treasure in heaven. You are... You are making that eternal life even more valuable. You're gathering fruit unto life eternal. Uh, 1 Timothy 6, verse 19. Now that's the attendance code. I mentioned it earlier, but I'd like to point it out to you now. 1 Timothy 6, and verse 19. Paul talks to the rich here, and he says uh, that they should be ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. So somebody that uses their their resources to, to be a help and a blessing to others and willing to give, to distribute, they are investing in this spiritual life and that allows them to lay hold on eternal life. It means more to them because they're putting the treasure up on the other side. So they're looking forward to heaven even more because they have more invested in it. Come to Romans chapter 8. I mentioned the chapter earlier. I just want to show you one verse. It's not that we're waiting to get all the rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. There's even a reward now. If you sow to the Spirit, uh, one of the things that you can reap now, you see in Romans 8 verse 6. For to be carnally minded is death. You'll feel dead inside if you sow to the flesh. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. 
what life are we talking about? The life of God. The, the life that God has put into you. So when I follow the Holy Spirit, I get to re, I get to enjoy that benefit. I get to have an abundance of peace, joy, righteousness, hope. All of that swells up within me. All right, come back to Galatians now in chapter 6, verse number 9. He says in, in uh, Galatians, I'm sorry, 6 and verse 9, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. So there is a present tense application to sowing and reaping and consequences of sin and benefits of doing right and following the Spirit. But Paul is also in the passage clearly putting a futuristic spin on it, saying, guys, you may not feel like there's much benefit to it now. You may look at it and say, I'm just giving up everything and I'm being persecuted. Paul certainly was. The government hates me. My friends hate me. These Judaizers hate me. Paul says, guys, don't, don't, don't stop doing right just because you don't see all the benefits immediately. Now, you will have that inner peace and joy from the Holy Spirit. But, as I've mentioned a couple times recently, one of the temptations for, for active believers is they're doing the work, and then they start looking around in the church, and there's a lot of people that aren't doing the work. Now, one thing to remember is you may not see all that they're doing. Keep that in mind. But number two, even if they're not doing anything, if they're not pulling their weight and you have to pull your weight and theirs, and it's not fair, don't let the devil deceive you into thinking that you're wasting your time. You'll reap in due season. But now if you quit before the Lord comes back, if you quit before your time on earth is done, then you can lose rewards for that. Rewards that you have laid up those things, you, you can lose some of that. This is something we cover in discipleship, the, the, the idea of gaining and losing rewards, so I won't get deep into that now, but don't get discouraged. There's a good song that we sing, I think, that speaks to this, this verse very well. We sing it in our hymn book number 149, When We See Christ. Oft times the day seems long, our trials hard to bear. We're tempted to complain, to murmur, and despair. But Christ will soon appear to catch His bride away, all tears forever over in God's eternal day. Sometimes the sky looks dark with not a ray of light. We're tossed and driven on, no human help in sight. But there's one in heaven who knows our deepest care. Let Jesus solve your problem, just go to Him in prayer. Life's day will soon be o'er. Our storms forever past. We'll cross the great divide to glory safe at last. We'll share the joys of heaven, a harp, a home, a crown. The tempter will be banished. We'll lay our burden down. Doesn't that fit nicely with Galatians 6? About the burdens we're bearing. And then we sing, It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of His dear face, all sorrows will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. I think it's perfectly, perfectly suited for verse 9.
Now, verse 10, he says, As we there have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. So there's some priority here. You take care of your family first. Now, that's true in a, in a physical sense. We take care of the people living under our roof. We take care of our extended family. But the same is true in a spiritual sense. The church is instructed to take care of widows, to take care of poor saints. And every local church should have a system. They should be aware of that. They should have some sort of organized effort to relieving those people that are in need. But you as an individual, as opportunities come, take advantage of those opportunities. Now, you know, before this whole coronavirus thing hit, people would come and sometimes say, if there's anything I can do, please let me know. Man, there's something we can do right? I can't help but mention again that our brother Leon, he's out there delivering food on a daily basis. At the very least, pray for this man, right? But we can, this is a chance to reach out to somebody. Somebody's scared. Somebody's confused as to what's going on. Somebody might be sick. There's, there's just, there's plenty of opportunities now. I, I guess there always is if you really want to look deep enough, but especially these days. Now, let us do good to all men, even the, even the ones that hate you, right? Even, even your enemies. Jesus said, love them, do good to them. You can lend to them, you can help them. Uh, in Hebrews, we read this, be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for some have entertained angels unawares. So maybe not an enemy, maybe not a friend or a brother in Christ, just a complete stranger, but help them out if you have the opportunity. Verse 11 Verse 11, we enter into the third part of our outline, and this is the law of the cross. Verse 11, he says, Ye see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. Now, as far as we know, this is the only epistle that Paul wrote with his own hand. He obviously is responsible for several other epistles, but for all of those, he had something, the fancy theological, it's not a theological word, but you read this in a lot of theological books. An amanuensis. Amanuensis. A-M-A-N-U-E-N-S-I-S. Amanuensis. Which is a fancy way of saying a secretary who takes dictation. In biblical times, this would be a scribe. Somebody who, who would uh, listen to the man speak and then he would write it down. Not everybody was skilled at writing and uh, they didn't have penmanship or whatever, so uh, this was a very popular, well, it was a highly sought-after job in those days. He didn't have very many professionals. But Paul, now, he didn't always have a professional amanuensis, but he did have some other brother in Christ that would often write it for him. And he, he points it out here to these Galatians that he wrote this letter. Now, two things you want to see in it, how large a letter. He's, I don't think he's talking about the length of the letter, because right? Galatians isn't that long compared to Paul's other epistles. So I don't see why he would refer to it as length. It, I think what he's referring to is the size of the letters on the page. We know from chapter 4 that he had eye trouble, so there's a high likelihood that he's saying, guys, look at this letter. You know that it's me who wrote it. See how big the letters are. Most you know, other uh, scribes would not have used such a, such a large letter. But this shows the Galatians something. It shows them how important this epistle is to Paul and how 
dire the need was that this letter immediately get to them. He had to address the situation, and he did it personally. He didn't have a secretary just write it for him, and then Paul signed it. Paul sat down, put all these words on the paper himself, and sent it out. So I think he's just showing how much he he cares about these people. Verse 12, As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, now he's referring to those Judaizers, they constrain you to be circumcised. So he says there's some guys that want to use you Galatians as a claim to fame. It says they constrain you to be circumcised, but they want to do it to make a, a fair show in the flesh. Look at how many followers I have. Look at how big my church is. Now, it says at the end of the verse, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. Now, the way that's worded, it makes it sound as if these Judaizers are continuing to preach circumcision, but they know it's wrong. But the reason they keep on preaching circumcision is twofold. Number one, they have a claim to fame. They have a, a big reputation in that crowd. Everybody looks up to them. You know, they have a, they're a big shot in those circles. So that's one reason they don't quit preaching it, even though they know it's wrong. And number two, if they were to say, this system of, of the law is no longer necessary, doesn't save people, if they were to abandon circumcision and everything that goes with it and start preaching what Paul does, they would be made fun of, ridiculed, they would be cast out, and they don't want to lose their reputation. They don't want to be persecuted. So Paul says, I'm sure there there were some Judaizers that truly believed what they were preaching, but there were a number of them whose God was their belly, and they they weren't concerned about telling the truth. They wanted to to receive honor from men. I think this ties in nicely with 1 Timothy 4, verse 2, where Paul says that some men depart from the faith speaking lies in hypocrisy searing their own conscience, right? Having their own conscience seared. So they know it's wrong, but they keep preaching it anyway. They're speaking lies and hypocrisy. They like the fame. They don't want to be persecuted. You know, I have known too many Christians, too many, that you sit down with them and you show them, listen, what your church is teaching you, it's wrong because of A, B, C, and you show them in the Bible. And they say something to this effect. Yeah, I I get it. I see it. But you know, I've been in that church so long. I I don't want to rock the boat. What they're afraid of is they're, they're afraid of offending people in that church. So rather than follow the truth and do right, they'll just stay in that church. Now, maybe they have a big reputation in that church. Maybe they're afraid that if they left, people would talk about them behind their back. I, don't, I can't speak to the motive of their hearts. All I know is I've met too many people that will acknowledge, yes, my church isn't giving me all the truth, but I have known preachers that do this. In Malawi one time, Brother Ashbad, he led a, a Presbyterian pastor to Christ, and he explained to this, in Malawi we call him CCAP, He explained to this man where he was wrong with his doctrine. 
And the CCAP church does have some problems. And this preacher got saved. He was a pastor of a church. He wasn't saved. Ashbed led him to Christ. And Ashbed said, now that you've seen the truth, are you... Are you going to quit your church and come to our... He said, no, 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 no. He said, why? He said, they give me a paycheck. Whew. Speaking lies and hypocrisy. Um, verse 13. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. So again, their claim to fame. They, they want to brag about how many circumcisions they had this month. It's a strange way to talk about it. In, in fundamentalist circles, they talk about how many did you have baptized in your church this month? Uh, how big is your Sunday school class? How many professions of faith? How many, how many children do you have riding the bus to come to church? That's a big thing in America. For these guys, it was, so how many did you have circumcised this month? That was the big thing. He says, the strange thing about it is these guys who preach circumcision and say that the law is the big deal, they don't even keep the law. Now, Paul can say this because before he got saved, he was a, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He genuinely tried to keep the law. And obviously, he knew that he didn't. He says, these guys that are preaching it, they don't even, they're not making a real effort to even keep the law. The only reason they're preaching this is because they want to report numbers. They want to have quote-unquote conversions, to their, to their persuasion. Verse 14, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now you can see, I'm so sorry, my phone flipped out. I hope it's still working. In verse 14, or verse 12 rather, he mentions the cross of Christ. In verse 14, he's going to mention the cross of Christ. So that's why I call this passage the law of the cross. Paul says, I'm not going to glory in how many converts I've had. I'm not going to brag about my ministry as if, as if it's uh, my eloquent speaking or my fancy theological system or you know my uh, special talents for entertaining a crowd. It, Paul says, I'm not... I have no place to brag. The only reason that there is fruit coming from my life and my ministry is because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. That's it. He says, I'm going to glory in that. So we sing another song. I will cling to the old rugged cross. All right? Cling to that. Paul says, that's that. And forgive the phrase, that is my claim to fame. I hide behind the cross. Just say, look at the one who died for you. Now, Paul says, I'm crucified to the world and the world is crucified to me. Paul got a divorce from the world, which is him essentially saying, I don't care what the world thinks about me. My worldly reputation is, it it means nothing to me. The only thing that matters to me is what Christ thinks. So that's Paul saying, the world is crucified unto me. Now, the world, when they hear that, they throw it right back at you. They say, you know what? We don't care what Christ thinks. All we care about is what society, what everybody around us, if they think, if it's the popular opinion, if it's politically correct, then we're good with that. So the world is crucified unto us and we are crucified unto the world. 
goes both ways there. One of, one of the best things you'll ever do though, brother, sister, the best thing you'll ever do is get a divorce from public opinion. Christianity is not a popularity contest. You have one person to impress, only Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to try to finish this chapter, so please stick with me for just a couple extra minutes here. For in Christ Jesus, verse 15, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. Now this we've already talked about a couple times. Back in chapter 3, verse 28 was the first time. In Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female. What makes a difference is the new creature, the new man. And the new man is the combination of you, your spirit being joined to the Lord. That, that is something. That's something special. Your cultural background, circumcision, uncircumcision, Jew or Gentile, in Christ that holds no weight. Verse 16, And as many as walk according to this rule, the Greek word for rule in this occasion is canon. Kanon, canon. The same word we use, this is where we get the word, for canon of Scripture. And it means a, a standard or a rule of faith. So when he says, as many as walk according to this rule, so those of you that follow Paul's system, his standard for what's important, that is the cross, that is the new creature in Christ. If you agree with Paul's teaching, Paul wishes these two things upon you. Peace be on them and mercy. So peace and mercy to you. This is in 2 John chapter 1 and verse 10. You see the, the other side to this. When you're dealing with a heretic, John said, Do not receive him into your home and do not wish him God's speed. You don't wish him peace and mercy. You don't say, God bless you. You know, I, because you would, you would be approving condoning to, to an extent what he teaches and what he does. So Paul says, now if you agree with this, peace and mercy. And then look that there's a comma, and upon the Israel of God. Paul is not referring to Christians as spiritual Jews. I, a lot of people take it that way. There's no other verse of Scripture that would um, corroborate such a teaching. When he says, and upon the Israel of God, there, that's a separate entity now. At the beginning of the verse, if you walk according to this rule, you're saved, you're under grace, you believe that system. And then he, he, comma, and upon the Israel of God. Separate entity, not the body of Christ. So what is the Israel of God? It's Israel. It's, it's the Israel that God formed. Paul is passing a blessing upon or wishing a blessing upon other believers who are like-minded and Israel as a nation. Now why is this? Paul is not saying that every individual Jew is saved because they're the, the, the seed of Abraham. That's not it. Paul recognizes, however, that the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. And we're going to cover this in Romans 11. Israel as a nation, they are still God's chosen people. And one day, when the times of the Gentiles have, has come to an end, God is going to turn back to Israel as a nation and save them, regather them, and so forth. As I say in Romans 11, we'll cover this more in depth. But there's nothing here about a spiritual Jew, about a Gentile who got saved and becomes a spiritual Jew. 
you can, if you think back to the setting in which Paul wrote this, the Judaizers are emphasizing how people need to become Jewish. They're emphasizing Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you follow in the law, then you're connected to that covenant and so forth. We don't have time tonight to get into how a Gentile converts to Judaism and what that meant. But Paul, I think, is pointing out the real Israel of God. They, Paul wishes them well as a nation. Some people were accusing Paul of hating Jews and saying that Israel was a bad thing. And, and Paul, I think, he mentions that here to clear that up, say, listen, we need to make sure we're, we know who the real Israel is. And, and they, and uh, may God help them and bless them as a nation. So Paul wasn't against the nation. Now, verse 17, from henceforth, let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Paul is suffering persecution. He has marks. He, he was whipped 195 times. He's, his body is filled with lashes from the whip. So he has proof that he's preaching the cross, right? He, he's following Christ and he has physical evidence to back that up. He says, let no man trouble me henceforth. For, from here on out, don't let anybody trouble me. Why? I'm being persecuted and it takes a lot to stay strong and endure that. And if you keep piling on the heartbreak of departing from the faith and, and, and uh, being, leaving behind the system of grace, you know, uh, let's say departing from that and trusting the Lord. Guys, he says, you're breaking my heart. And I, I, can't, be, I can't bear all of that. So I'm going to have to endure this persecution. Please get it right and, and let's not continue to argue about this. Fix it while you have a chance. Verse 18, Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Now why point out, be with your spirit? In Proverbs 18, verse 14, the Bible says, The spirit of a man will sustain his infirmity, but a wounded spirit who can bear? Now he also, before I leave that that cross-reference, if you're strong in spirit, it can hold you up when your body gets weak. But if your spirit's broken, then what, what holds that up? So that's why Paul says, guys, if, if you're going to follow the truth, there's going to be some persecution. You might get whipped or beaten or something like that. You need, to be, you need to have a strong spirit so that you can endure those physical troubles. And furthermore, in Galatians 5 and 10, remember that Paul said, I have confidence in you through the Lord. So in order for them to fix this theological mistake, and to get things back where they need to be with the Lord, to restore the fellowship with God and everything that that entails. That's why Paul would wish them, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, because you're going to have to have that strong, that, that inner strength to, to do it. All right, that brings us to a close for tonight. I appreciate the extra time in finishing this up. Uh, you will have a Galatians exam. I do not have the exam printed up or, or, or uh, ready yet, but I will give you the notes for that uh, very soon. If I understand correctly, we do not have class this Sunday evening, so we'll have a break. But Lord willing, um, we'll see, well, you'll see me again at least on Sunday morning. And don't forget Thursday, tomorrow we have Michelle teaching the kids, and Friday we have Michael speaking to the students. All right, let's go ahead and bow our heads. We'll pray together. Father, thank you for allowing us to cover this chapter. And there, there is a lot to it, Lord. I 
We could spend a a lot longer talking about each thing, but help these students now to take what they've learned, meditate on it, see how it fits into their life. And please, God, give us a chance to fulfill the law of Christ and help someone overcome a fault or bear a burden. Give us an opportunity to do good unto all men. Lord, give us a chance. Help us to sow to the Spirit. Father, thank you for this time tonight, and I pray that your hand will be on each and every listener. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Guys, thanks for the time. We'll see you soon.